and PDX. Bring the fire, Wednesday, October 26th at 5 p.m. at the Q Center, 4115 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This KBU program is made possible in part by KBU Foundation members and a grant from Radio Cab, the transportation choice of Portlanders since 1946, with service 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Radio Cab has a mobile app that allows you to book a cab with your phone, available at the App Store, Google Play, and at radiocab.net. Or, if you prefer, you can talk to a real person at 503-227-1212. This KBU program is made possible in part by KBU Foundation members and a grant from Portland's Gay Directory, providing a resource guide of openly gay-friendly businesses, organizations, and services since 1996. New smartphone app available for all iPhones and Droids. For more information, you can visit gaypdx.com. It's 6 o'clock. You're listening to KBOO Portland. It's going to be a groundswell of good people coming forward and, you might say, enforcing their values on those who don't agree with them. It is with great joy that I am here to celebrate the opening of the first International Gay Athletic Olympics. Tonight, we are marching, as are others across America, and we shouldn't have to be. This is not a gay disease. It is not a gay disease. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. Indonesia's president tries tossing a life preserver to waterboarded queers, a Romanian marriage case divides top officials, and October's LGBT History Month flashes back to the early 80s. All that and more this week, now that you've discovered This Way Out. I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Sarah Sweeney. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending October 22, 2016. The President of Indonesia has finally spoken out in defense of LGBT human rights following months of intensified verbal and physical attacks on sexual and gender minorities in the world's fourth most populous country. President Joko Widodo, known in the country as Jokowi, made his first public comments about the deteriorating situation for LGBT people this week. He said during an interview with the BBC that, The police must act to protect them. There should be no discrimination against anyone. Just last month, a presidential spokesperson in the world's most populous Muslim country said that, There is no room in Indonesia for the proliferation of the LGBT movement. And in his comments about protecting queer citizens this week, Jokowi himself also stressed that, regarding same-gender sex, Islam does not allow it. Nevertheless, a press release from Human Rights Watch said that 
Jokowi's long overdue statement in support of LGBT non-discrimination is a breath of fresh air as Indonesian officials and politicians continue their abusive and ill-informed homophobic onslaught. Jokowi needs the political courage, the release added, to demonstrate that such beliefs can't and won't trump his obligation to defend the rights of all Indonesians. Other officials in Jokowi's administration, including his education and defense ministers, have condemned the existence of sexual and gender minorities in the country. Government watchdog agencies have clamped down on LGBT-supportive social media. And just this week, Indonesian lawmakers passed a new bill that authorizes chemical castration in an effort to wipe out sex crimes. Activists have expressed fears that the new law may be used against LGBT people. Considering the rising tide against sexual and gender minorities in the country, observers aren't sure what impact, if any, Jokowi's comments will have. Romania's president and prime minister are at odds over LGBT rights. Commenting on a case now before the nation's highest court involving the recognition of the civil marriage of a gay Romanian man and a U.S. citizen, President Klaus Johannes, an ethnic German and a Lutheran, noted this week that he belongs to two minorities. Tolerance and acceptance of others are vital, he said. These are the values I believe in. That Romanian-American gay couple legally married in Belgium in 2010 and now lives in the United States. They launched a legal fight to get their marriage sanctioned in Romania in 2012 after the country's immigration authorities refused to recognize their union when they wanted to work there. The Constitutional Court has twice delayed making a decision in their case. The justices are now expected to rule in the coming week. The politically influential Romanian Orthodox Church strongly opposes the petition. And Prime Minister Dacian Cholos voiced his support for the traditional family the day after the president's comments. More than three million people have also signed a petition circulated by a group of conservative religious groups under the banner of the Coalition for Family demanding that civil marriage for same-gender couples be constitutionally banned. They want a legal union to be defined as only being possible between a man and a woman. Romanian law now defines civil marriage simply as between spouses. Thousands of people marched in Paris on October 16th to demand the repeal of civil marriage equality in France six months ahead of the next presidential election. Police estimated the crowd at about 24,000. The organizers, a group opposed to marriage equality called Manif Portu, claimed ten times that amount. Marchers were also demanding bans on assisted fertility services for lesbian couples and surrogate mothers helping same-gender couples have babies, even though French law currently allows assisted reproduction services only to infertile heterosexual couples and bans surrogacy altogether. Organizers claim that people from all over the country took part in the march. They said they hoped the demonstration would influence presidential politics. But according to the Associated Press, none of the major candidates attended the march. France opened civil marriage to gay and lesbian couples in 2013, but conservative religious groups, led by Manif Portu, have maintained their indignation and opposition ever since. Tens of thousands of people, organized primarily by groups affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church, marched against civil marriage equality last month in Mexico City. They want to stem the march of equality spurred by the nation's Supreme Court, which has ruled against several state bans on civil marriage for same-gender couples in recent years. Lesbian and gay couples can currently get married in Mexico City and 10 of the country's 31 states. 
However, under the nation's complicated legal system, unless bans are repealed by their state governments, individual couples must spend money and time in the court system on a case-by-case basis to get a civil marriage license. Marchers were also protesting the proposal by Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto that civil marriage be opened nationwide to same-gender couples legislatively. But there doesn't seem to be much interest at the moment among Mexico's lawmakers to do that. In other news, three men caused a stir in Amsterdam this week by distributing flyers calling for all religious people to unite and exterminate gays and lesbians. The leaflets remind conservative Muslims, Christians, and Jews that homosexuality is forbidden in their respective religions. The leaflets include bogus statistics that 29% of children of lesbians and gay men are sexually abused. The moral responsibility for the children, they warn, is all of ours for the coming generations. The leaflets also claim that LGBT people are more likely to suffer from mental illness and have higher suicide rates. At least 75 people have filed complaints with the police over the inflammatory handouts. One of four suspects was identified from closed-circuit video, although it was later determined that he was only with the men at the time they were distributing the flyers, but was not involved. The three other men turned themselves in on October 20th, but claimed during interrogation that they only wanted to spark a discussion. The men's identities have not been released. Authorities will only say that the trio consisted of two 29-year-olds from The Hague and a 39-year-old from Rotterdam, who said that they targeted Amsterdam because it's considered to be the country's LGBT capital. The public prosecutor's office is trying to determine whether what they did constitutes a criminal offense. Australia's House of Representatives approved a bill this week to hold a national referendum, or plebiscite, on opening civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples. The vote was 76 to 67. But all indications point to the bill's defeat in the Senate, where government MPs are in the minority. The leading opposition Labour Party, the Greens, and a few independent MPs have united to oppose what they call a costly and divisive national vote when all public opinion polls already show overwhelming support for marriage equality. They also object to the non-binding nature of the plebiscite as proposed by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, under which MPs would not be required to ratify the result in a marriage equality bill to follow. The plebiscite bill now moves to the Senate. Forty senators have pledged to vote against it, two more than the 38 needed to block legislation in that chamber. And finally, indigenous people around the world are celebrating a breakthrough in Australia. With his recent election, Shaanxi Pesh became the nation's first openly gay Aboriginal MP. He celebrated his diverse identity this week during the opening of the 13th Legislative Assembly of the Northern Territory. He also made it clear which political party made his election possible. I am a Centralian man. I am the nation's first openly gay indigenous parliamentarian. I am eternally proud of who I am and where I come from. I own it and wear it with pride. Madam Speaker, I am young, I am gay, I am black, a true blue Territorian. I am a proud face of the diversity and future of the great Australian Labor Party. The 28-year-old MP was elected in August by 60% of his mostly rural constituency, despite a smear campaign about his sexuality by some of his opponents. 
He also called in his maiden speech for improved roadways to some of Australia's most isolated areas and made an impassioned plea for civil marriage equality. That's News Wrap for the week ending October 22nd, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Sarah Sweeney. And I'm Michael LeBeau. These are gay and lesbian people singing out here. What's your reaction to that? Well, I think it's terrible how to rock and throw it at them. The religious right rocks on, and other 80s hits later in the program. But first, how could it be LGBT History Month without at least one Rainbow Minute? Dreaming of a Gay Olympics, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The concept of a Gay Olympics is credited to a competitor in the 1968 Olympics named Dr. Tom Waddell. But in 1982, just weeks before the first Gay Olympics was to take place in San Francisco, the United States Olympic Committee obtained a restraining order forbidding the use of the word Olympics. Although the committee had not objected to the use of the word in events like the Nebraska Rat Olympics, the Crab Cooking Olympics, or even the Nude Olympics, Waddell lost his fight at the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1987, while losing his fight with AIDS, the court even ruled that the U.S. Olympic Committee could have their legal fees of $92,000 levied against his home. By 1994, the committee had a new posture, giving the openly gay Olympic champ Greg Louganis its highest award. In his acceptance speech, Louganis dedicated the award to Tom Waddell. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hi, this is Greg Luganis, and you're listening to This Way Out. This year's U.S. presidential campaign has brought the rebirth of the phrase moral majority. The Rio Summer Olympics featured nearly 50 openly LGBT athletes. And when another World AIDS Day comes around in a few weeks, 35 million people will have died in the pandemic and 34 million more are living with HIV. These present-day stories have their roots in the early 1980s, a period worth looking at during October's LGBT History Month. So we reached back into the This Way Out audio archives for news coverage from mid-1981 to mid-1983, when AIDS was new, the first gay games were played, and the religious right was an as yet unproven political force. We come from the moral majority. Heed our warning when we say... It's going to be a groundswell of good people coming forward and, you might say, enforcing their values on those who don't agree with them. We are here to cleanse impurity, rid the world of lies and sin. We're talking about well over 350, 60, 70, 80, 90 members of Congress who, if your rights, their re-election are placed on the table, don't bet on your rights. Just like Adolf Hitler's Germany, purebred and Christian, watch out, we may win. 
Although the fundamentalist movement has existed in American politics since the days of the Puritans, they call themselves the New Right. Their leaders, like the moral majority's Jerry Falwell, are also the spiritual leaders of conservative middle America, and they speak on matters of religion and politics with the same righteous fervor. In 1981, Falwell began a series of letters to moral majority members announcing a war against gays and lesbians. Let's stop the homosexuals once and for all, he told the faithful. In September, after the Washington, D.C. City Council had thrown out the city's archaic anti-sodomy law, Falwell went to Congress, which has final legislative authority over the nation's capital, to have the D.C. law reinstated. The U.S. House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly to restore the anti-sodomy ordinance. The gay rights national lobby's Susan Green identified Falwell's primary political tool. Fears are strange things to people, and we didn't have anything to threaten them with. The moral majority did. They were actually threatening people in Congress and saying, if you don't vote our way, we'll see that you don't get elected next time. And a lot of these people don't have spines. A lot of them just said, oh my God, you know, I want to stay in Congress, therefore I'm going to do what these people say. During the months after his victory, Falwell took his I Love America roadshow around the country, but in every city he visited, hundreds of gays and lesbians turned out in protest. What are your feelings tonight? Um, I'm feeling wonderful. I'm feeling this is just beautiful and that people are coming together strong and loving and caring and that we're celebrating our lifestyles and that we're celebrating that we are good people. I'm mostly shocked by the... Uh, by the the violent looks and remarks of, of, the, of the Falwell community walking by us. I mean, that was surprising to me. I thought that they would just accept us and walk by, you know, but they gave us remarks like faggots and get lost, and that was real ugly to me. And it verified many things, what can I say? Hi, what do you think of the demonstration here tonight? I think it stinks. What do you think about Jerry Falwell mixing politics and religion so much? He isn't mixing them. He's just telling us what the Word of God is telling us. Isn't he telling some people how to vote, though? Not that I'm aware of. Everybody has a choice. So a woman should have a choice whether she wants an abortion or not? No, I don't think she has the right to murder. These are gay and lesbian people singing out here. What's your reaction to that? I have a little boy, and oh, that's disgusting, what? you know. That is disgusting because that, oh... I have a little boy, and I would hate for my little boy to be like that. Those are animals. I think it's terrible how to rock and throw it at them. Really? That's not a very Christian attitude. That's what they need. August 1982. It is with great joy that I am here to celebrate the opening of the first international gay athletic Olympics. The games have been absolutely spectacular. I don't have to tell you. Yesterday, I cried, and I never cry. I'm one of these tough cowboys that never cry. <laughs> All the people who have been afraid to acknowledge that lesbians and gay people have been an active part of athletics throughout time you can shout it now. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
ago did you hear about the games? About uh, six months ago. And how did you hear about them? Uh, it was in the press, actually, in the straight press. <laughs> in the straight press? What did they have to say about it? Oh, they just said that uh, there were gay games in San Francisco. Athletes came from 12 countries, 28 states, and 149 cities to participate in the gay athletic games. Those nations represented were Australia, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, England, France, Holland, Ireland, New Zealand, Peru, West Germany, and the United States. Most of us paid our own uh, uh, way to come here. We got uh, assistance with uh, tracksuits, uh, a bit of sporting equipment, things like that. The international press was also in evidence. Rolf Kunkel, a feature writer for Germany's Der Spiegel, remarked, it really attracted our attention when the USOC asked them to drop the Olympics from the name. Just days prior to the opening of the Games, the committee was informed of a court-ordered injunction preventing that organization from using the word Olympics in their name. Los Angeles ACLU gay rights chapter attorney Susan McGreevy lent some insight to the court proceedings. I'm not really concerned so much about the copyright issue as I am about the overwhelmingly uh, poor showing of sportsmanship. An estimated 10,000 spectators cheered the Kizar Stadium opening ceremonies, which featured marching bands, baton twirlers, square dancing, color guards, politicians, dignitaries, and the traditional parade of athletes bearing the flags of their countries. Authors Rita Mae Brown and Armistead Maupin emceed, and entertainment was provided by Meg Christian and Tina Turner. The finale of the opening ceremonies was the lighting of the Olympic torch and the release of thousands of gaily colored balloons. The torch lighting was the culmination of the work of more than 2,000 volunteer runners, walkers, and cyclists who relayed the torch across the country from the location of the Stonewall Bar in New York City some 10 weeks earlier. It's fabulous. It looks very competitive. It's very festive is the word for it. Uh, there's a lot of athletes out here competing to enjoy themselves, which they really never had a chance to. When I was out at the marathon, a man who ran over 26 miles came in in second place, and after uh, resting for about 10 or 15 minutes with the silver blanket that they put around the marathon runners, he turned around to the crowd and wrapped it around him. He says, you like my dress? <laughs> and just being able to say that after you run 26 miles. The week had been proclaimed Gay Games Week by San Francisco Mayor Diane Feinstein, and closing ceremonies were held on September the 5th. A tea dance took place on Kizar Stadium Field, 800 choir members sang, and Stephanie Mills performed. Of course, there was a parade of champions. Organizers said they planned to hold another Games in 1986. This is our first Olympics in 1,500 years, and that's a <laughs> long, long time. And I hope it's no 1,500 years before the next one. May 1983. Three Los Angeles City Council members joined a crowd of nearly 5,000 at the federal building in Westwood to demand more government funding for research into the AIDS epidemic.
We are gathered together tonight for one purpose, to fight back against AIDS, the acquired immune deficiency syndrome. This is not a gay disease. It is not a gay disease. I know that there are some horror stories about people with AIDS who have been disenfranchised of their basic rights. Their, their roommates have kicked them out. They've been served on paper plates. Their families have disowned them. Support the community. Help us deal with the panic because people are panicking. If we withdraw from one another and excoriate one another because of our guilt and our fear, we'll only add joy to the heart of every right-wing, Bible-thumping homophobe in America. Tonight, we are marching as our others across America and we shouldn't have to be. When I asked my doctor what my uh, mortality would be, <laughs> he didn't have an answer. Tonight, we are pleading for our lives and the future lives of Americans, and we should not have to be. It's very frightening to think more often than not, I've read that the average lifespan is two years after diagnosis. And I hate to think, I'll lose my brother at 24. You don't have to be Jewish to care about someone dying from Tay-Sachs disease. And you don't have to be black to care about someone dying from sickle cell anemia. And you don't have to be gay to care about someone dying from AIDS. All it takes is a little human decency. I was diagnosed with AIDS last December. The worst part of having this disease, and I think this is true for most other AIDS patients, is not the physical hassles. They're bad. But the worst part is the sense of isolation and the incredible loneliness and the times of indescribable hopelessness in combating this disease. But as I look out tonight and in talking to people before, all I felt was a sense of faith and hope and a lot of love coming from all you people. And right now, I don't feel any sense of isolation or loneliness, and I don't feel any sense of hopelessness. And it's this kind of concern, the kind that's brought you people here tonight, that makes me able to stand here and say, I know I'm going to win over this disease.
Meanwhile, in the rest of the world, between 1981 and 83, thousands demonstrated against bathhouse raids in Toronto, Paris saw its first Pride March, and the European Court of Human Rights issued its first ruling against the criminalization of homosexuality. U.S. President Ronald Reagan finally mentioned AIDS in public in 1985. Living in wartime singer-songwriter and AIDS activist Michael Callan succumbed to the disease in 1983. And in the 2016 presidential race, Jerry Falwell Jr. has endorsed Donald Trump. Thanks for discovering This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. This week, Michael LeBeau, Sarah Sweeney, and Dustin Richardson, produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, contributed program material, with thanks, as always, to Steve Pride. The reporters in the early 80s history feature included David Hunt, Timothy Sturton, Debbie Fidler, Joan Klein, and Josie Catoggio. Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This way, I'll thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yavana Foundation, the estate of Christopher David Trentum, our contributing affiliate stations, and you, our listener supporters, who all make this program possible. Email TWORadio at AOL.com or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For associate producer Lucia Chappelle and the entire This Way Out family, I'm Greg Gordon. We all thank you for listening online at thiswayout.org and on BCFM Bristol, England, Radio Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona, WHUS Stores, Connecticut, and more than 200 other stations around the world, including this community radio station. Stay tuned. I'm Laura Flynn, and this is Making Contact. We had an ultra-segregationist by the name of Leander Perez, who was a part of the National White Citizen Council for Alabama, Mississippi, and all those states to prevent people from registering to vote. But Mr. Victor Ragas was one of the civil rights leaders, and he started the first march for the right to vote in Plaquemine Parish in 1941. So people be hearing about Sam, Alabama, and uh, all other places in the country my exhibit here in this building is so that future generations understand that when you think of Dr. Martin Luther King and all these people, you have people in Plaquemine Parish who are doing this work, you know, since the early 40s. Reverend Tyrone Edwards' exhibit, Freedom Fighters for the Right to Vote, honors the struggle for civil rights in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. Communities throughout the South, just like this one, are filled with local heroes who never made it to the history books, but played an influential role in shaping civil rights legislation. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll hear how people are trying to preserve these legacies and how 50 years after the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, shifting policies are threatening some of those hard-fought gains towards equality. First, we head to Monroe, Georgia, where the last mass lynching in the U.S. took place back in 1946. The case remains open, but one group stages an annual reenactment in hopes of solving it and drawing attention to the political repression at the time. Anna Simonton's father plays a Klansman in the reenactment. She takes us to the scene. They say you've been putting your hands on my woman. What the hell you got to say about that, Hester? I ain't gonna tell you again. 
Get off my property before I kick you off. It was in 1946 in the small town of Monroe, Georgia, on a hot July afternoon, when Roger Malcolm, a black man, accused his white employer, Barnett Hester, of sleeping with his wife. Their argument turned physical, and Malcolm stabbed Hester, then fled. He turned himself over to local law enforcement later that day and was booked at the Walton County Jail. Roger Malcolm's wife, Dorothy Malcolm, sought help from Loy Harrison, a wealthy white farmer her relatives worked for. On July 25, 1946, Harrison drove Dorothy Malcolm, along with her brother and his wife, to Monroe, where they bailed out Roger Malcolm from jail. Mr. Loy, I so appreciate this. Yeah, yeah, we better go. On the way to the farm, Harrison took a back road through cotton fields and groves of trees. When they arrived at the Moores Ford Bridge, vehicles blocked the road on the other side. Men emerged from them and advanced toward Harrison's car as he slowed down. They had laid in wait for Roger Malcolm, the black man who had stabbed his white boss. What's going on? Some of the men pulled Roger Malcolm from the car and put a noose around his neck. They began to lead him down to a field when Dorothy Malcolm suddenly shouted the name of one of the members of the mob. Later, Loy Harrison would tell the FBI that this happened, but would insist he couldn't remember the name she shouted. You know him? Instead of lynching only Roger Malcolm, they would execute the three witnesses as well. It would be the last mass lynching in the United States. Get them all out of the Members of the mob tied up the two couples. One, two, three, fire! No And then they fired 60 bullets into their bodies. Georgia State Representative Tyrone Brooks leads an audience through each scene of this annual reenactment of the mass lynching. He's been instrumental in organizing the event over the past 10 years, and in that time, he's come to emphasize one aspect of this crime in particular. The tragedy at the Ford Bridge on July 25, 1946 was more than just the lynching of two African-American couples, it really was a way to instill fear in the African-American community and to keep us away from the voting booths. Since 1891, Georgia, like a number of southern states, had a law preventing black people from voting in the Democratic primary. Cliff Kuhn, a history professor at Georgia State University, explains. The Democratic primary being all white, where the argument was the Democratic Party is a, a, a private club and can exclude whomever it wants, you know, on the basis of the fact it's a private club. The Democratic primary was the only election that really mattered, and African Americans were excluded. But in 1944, a black preacher from Columbus, Georgia, filed a lawsuit challenging the all white primary, and his case went all the way to the Supreme Court. 
On April 1, 1946, the court ruled that Georgia's whites-only Democratic primary was unconstitutional. That paved the way for a dramatic voter registration drive among African Americans in the spring of 1946, uh, where over 100,000 black Georgians registered to vote, far and away the mo- more than in any other southern state. It also paved the way for Eugene Talmadge, Georgia's three-time former governor and racist firebrand, to enter the gubernatorial race that year. In 1946, the conditions were ripe for Talmadge to do what he did best, capitalize on racist fear-mongering. If elected your governor, I shall see that the traditions which were fought for by our grandparents are maintained and preserved. I shall see that the people of this state have a democratic white primary. Every year, reenactors stage a Talmadge speech in between the fight scene and the jail scene. Talmadge won the primary. An FBI investigation later revealed that elections officials had purged thousands of ballots cast by black voters. In the run-up to the primaries, white people in towns across Georgia intimidated would-be black voters with cross-burnings, mob gatherings, and pamphlets that threatened fatal retaliation. Professor Kuhn says the worst episode took place in Butler, Georgia. The one black man who dares to vote in the primaries, a man named Maceo Snipes, World War II veteran, goes to the polls in his uniform, shot in the back when he leaves, is murdered. You know, uh, you know, so we're talking a range of forms of violence and intimidation that the Talmadge fo- folks in particular unleash leading up to the primary in July. Eight days after the murder of Maceo Snipes, Roger Malcolm would be lynched, along with Dorothy Malcolm and her brother and sister-in-law. Tyrone Brooks says the timing was no coincidence. It was more about voting in 1946 than just an incident between Roger Malcolm and Barnett Hester. It was, it was a whole climate of suppressing the vote. They were angry about the Supreme Court ruling. They were shocked that the Supreme Court would rule to strike down an all-white primary. But it happened. Unlike so many lynchings before, the massacre at Mooresford Bridge provoked a national outcry. It became the most massive lynching investigation in the nation's history. But after six months, during which FBI agents interviewed more than 2,000 people and came up with a list of 55 suspects, the case was left cold. No one was ever charged. Professor Kuhn says this is typical. And time after time after time after time after time during the lynching era, the coroner's report would say at the hands of persons unknown when everybody knew who had done it. In 2007, the Associated Press obtained FBI files showing that the agency investigated suspicions that Governor-elect Eugene Talmadge was in on the lynching. According to an unconfirmed witness, Talmadge met with the brother of the man Roger Malcolm had stabbed and offered immunity to anyone who, quote, took care of Malcolm. State Representative Tyrone Brooks. I want people to understand that the struggle for voting rights didn't start in 1965. 20 years before Selma, that was a Monroe, uh, that was a Butler, uh, that was the Malcolms and Dorses, that was the Maceo Snipes, and, and many others across the South. In 1999, Georgia Governor Roy Barnes reopened the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, or GBI, probe into the lynching. The FBI followed suit, reopening its investigation in 2006. But so far, neither has led to charges being brought. 
you know, the GBI and local and others have brought information time after time to the doorsteps of the local district attorney, the federal agencies, U.S. attorneys, and for whatever reason, they've decided we are not going to move on these suspects. Brooks says the next step is to push for a congressional investigation. For now, civil rights groups continue to organize this reenactment as a refusal to forget and as a call for justice. From Monroe, Georgia, for Making Contact, I'm Anna Simonton. A long time coming and I know a change gonna come. Public outcry did push President Harry Truman to create the President's Committee on Civil Rights, which included protections from lynchings. But brutality by angry white mobs would continue to be condoned and ignored by public officials for decades. Finally, in 1964, Congress had a noteworthy civil rights bill before it. But Southern Democrats, supporters of Jim Crow laws, were pushing a filibuster to kill the bill. It would take yet another violent incident to provoke federal action. This time at a motel swimming pool in a touristy old port city in Northeast Florida. Dina Weinstein has the story. It's June 18, 1964 in St. Augustine, Florida. A group of rabbis are praying in the Monsonmotor Lodge parking lot. Miami television station WCKT captures what happens next. Group of 70 white and Negro demonstrators, including 15 rabbis from New Jersey, showed up at the motel to pray. They were met by the establishment's owner, James Brock. While the rabbis were being arrested, Negro and white demonstrators, clad in bathing suits, jumped into the pool. Brock, frantic with rage, began dumping an acid cleaning agent into the water, apparently without harmful effect to the uninvited swimmers. Finally, an off-duty policeman leaped into the pool and began swinging at the demonstrators. The swimmers were dragged roughly from the water to waiting police vans. The next day, images of the Monson Motor Lodge manager dumping acid into the pool splashed across the front pages of newspapers around the country. Congress broke out of its filibuster and passed the Civil Rights Act. The act forbids discrimination on the basis of race and gender in hotels, motels, restaurants, theaters, and all other public accommodations engaged in interstate commerce. J.T. Johnson was one of the swimmers in St. Augustine that day. Well, it, it was a little worse than Alabama to me. I mean, we, we took more beatings here in St. Augustine than we did anywhere. Some of the things that happened here got the civil rights bill passed. Local activists had been protesting segregation in the historic city for over a year. They made the Monson Motor Lodge a primary target. Dr. Martin Luther King and Reverend Ralph Abernathy were denied service in the lodge's restaurant. The protest also led to the largest mass arrest of rabbis in American history. Rabbi Alan Setcher was one of these religious leaders who remembers the brutality. The cop took a cattle prod, and as I remember it, the girl was in a skirt, not jeans. And the girl was in a skirt, and he took the prod, he shoved it up her and turned it on. And then screamed, just a scream that I, I can hear still today. And he laughed, and he laughed, and then he kibitzed with his buddies. 
Now, 50 years later, Setcher, five other rabbis, and Johnson came back to town to commemorate the events of 1964. This time, city officials welcomed them to lunch. In the hotel, on the same site, they were arrested. The Motor Lodge has since been replaced by a Hilton, but one landmark still remains. This room is dedicated to Miss Peabody. Mm-hmm. And you'll see right there where her hat is. And she, was, she, was, she wore that hat a lot when she um, went through this when she went through the summer protest in March. 11th grade student Jarrell James walks a tour group through St. Augustine's new Civil Rights Museum. The museum is housed in the former dental office of local civil rights leader Dr. Robert Haling. In 1963, Haling protested a federally funded and segregated celebration, marking the city's 400th anniversary. The Ku Klux Klan attacked him that year. In response, Haling didn't hide. Instead, he increased his efforts to try and make St. Augustine the civil rights movement's next battleground. Teen docent Tamia Addickson says it's a history she rarely hears about in school. I thought it was a cool idea to come over and volunteer during the summer. So I was like, I know a little bit, not a lot, but... Have you learned a lot? Yeah, I'm constantly reading books and looking at different documents, constantly reminding myself by walking through the museum. And it's, yeah, I learned, I'm learning a lot. J.T. Johnson, who was swimming in the pool back in 1964 when acid was thrown in the water, says memorials and museums are not enough to mend our societal problems. They exist now. I mean, this not only in Florida, but in other states too. This country has to first get rid of racism before they can deal with the issues before them. Even as a civil rights act passed, St. Augustine's leadership resisted integration. Currently, there are no black elected officials. Locals see the 50th anniversary as a public acknowledgement of the accomplishments of the activists of 1964. But many in this town continue to struggle. Among the black residents in St. Augustine, more than a third live below the poverty line. For Making Contact, I'm Dina Weinstein in St. Augustine, Florida. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. My name is August T. Tinson. In 1955, I tried to become a registered voter because I had gone to the service. So when I came out of the service, I thought I should register, you understand? But since it made for me to go to the service and fight for a flag when I didn't have the right to vote. So I started down there at Blackman Parish Courthouse and I had to take a written test. I passed the test. But she, the, the registered voter kept telling me I didn't make it. Every day I went there. And I went there for a whole solid year. And every day I went there, she tell me, you didn't make it. And they tell me, come back the next day. I did that for a year. And finally, I think it was in 19, 
56 or something like that, or 57, I became a registered voter. You were called names. And after we, we started it, then we had like, I think it was three older men that joined us to try to become registered voter, you understand? And when we went there and they had a preacher that was with us, his name was Reverend Hardy. And every time she, he came in there, the, the registered voter was there, oh, here comes a big black <laughs> you understand? And we couldn't argue because the preacher would tell us, leave her alone, which we did. Well, when we took her to court, her name was Ethel Fox. That was the registered voter. And when they took her to court, we had to go to court with her. And when the judge called, told her to get up there and tell me the Constitution of the United States, she busted out crying. But we had to repeat the Constitution of the United States to her before we become registered voter. And I tell you, I did some bad things because I was young at the time. and. They told us when we go back home, don't tell her nothing, leave her alone. But I got on the phone and I called her. I said, you sure made a fool out yourself. You made us recite the Constitution of the United States and you couldn't do it. And I hanged up on her. Stories like August Hinson's were common. And while the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did ban unequal application of voter registration requirements, it still wasn't enough. Joining us to talk about the struggle to protect basic voting rights for all Americans is Gary May. He's a professor of history at the University of Delaware and the author of Bending Toward Justice, The Voting Rights Act and the Transformation of American Democracy. He starts us off in Selma, Alabama, where the conditions of racial intolerance would set the stage for the Voting Rights Act. Selma was the county seat of of Dallas County, and about 57% of the population uh, were African American, but only 1% were registered to vote. Bernard Lafayette, in early 1963, he went to uh, Selma, Alabama to uh, create a voting rights movement. He found there, already in existence, a voting rights movement that had been alive over 25 years. It was headed by Sam and Amelia Boynton, and they had been working for voter registration but had not made much progress. By that time, Sam Boynton was in a nursing home. Lafayette went to visit him, and the first thing Boynton would ask would be, have you registered yet? A voteless people, he said, is a hopeless people. And so Lafayette attempted to bolster the movement that was already in existence. And he was able to create workshops where African Americans were prepared to go down to the courthouse where the registrar's office was open. African Americans who showed up at the registrar's office often found it closed. The registrars, uh, who of course were all white, they would come to work late and they would leave early. If an African-American applicant was lucky enough and all three registrars, which were required to be there, were there, they had to take two tests. One was an oral test, then there was a written test. Among the questions, they'd have to interpret a clause of the Alabama state constitution. Now, white applicants who took a similar test 
the clause they had to interpret contained only eight words. African Americans, however, had to interpret a clause that contained 260 words. And then can you also talk about Freedom Day and how that became sort of a turning point in the right, the movement to gain voting rights? That particular day, Freedom Day, was in October of 1963. Several hundred African Americans showed up early in the morning uh, at the registrar's office. And uh, they were forced to stand there most of the day. The local sheriff, who uh, was an absolute monster, Jim Clark, refused them from leaving the line to go to the bathroom or to get something to eat. And you know, every effort to secure the right to vote in Selma was beaten back. But Amelia Boynton, taking over after her husband died in 1963, in late 1964, invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to launch a movement there on March 7th, 1965. Dr. King knew that George Wallace planned to block the march from Selma uh, to Montgomery, and he was concerned that there would be violence. So on the morning of March 7th, he actually decided that the, the march should not occur. And he sent one of his top aides, Andrew Young, call the march off. By the time that uh, Young arrived in Selma, he could already see this mass of Alabama state troopers and Clark's troops, which he called his posse, armed and waiting on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where the marchers would cross. The marchers, 600 strong, were ready to go. It was impossible to turn them back. Young called Dr. King, explained the situation, and King said, well, if you think that they're only going to be arrested. And so uh, that afternoon, after prayer, they marched to the bridge and were confronted by the state troopers and Clark's posse. Troopers on horseback with electric cattle prods. Amelia Boynton was beaten. Future Congressman John Lewis was struck in the head. Someone called for an ambulance, and Sheriff Clark said, let the buzzards eat them. Also present that day were photojournalists, and they got the attack of marchers being beaten and tear-gassed. They got it on film. Film was rushed to New York. ABC broke the news first. Americans watching the footage and then seeing photographs in the following morning's paper were just stunned. They could not believe that this kind of thing could happen in America. Peaceful marchers being assaulted by this, this army of troops. People rushed to Selma to join King's movement. They marched on Washington calling for a voting rights bill, besieged Lyndon Johnson in the White House. Johnson was sympathetic to a voting rights bill, but the 1964 Act had been passed only the previous July, and he didn't think the Congress and the country was ready for another civil rights bill. But Bloody Sunday, as it came to be called, changed everything. Johnson was able to put that bill at the top of his legislative agenda, and he gave a historic speech in which he said that the 
The hero of this story was the American Negro. Their courage had awakened the conscience of the nation. On March 17th, the bill was introduced in the Congress, and it had some difficult going and was not finally signed into law until August 6th, 1965. What were the key components of the Voting Rights Act that really sort of changed the landscape for voters, um, for, you know, for particularly African Americans? Well, it was, first of all, a bill to enforce the 15th Amendment, which made it illegal to prevent people from voting on the basis of race, color, and condition of previous servitude. It had a number of provisions. The most controversial one was Section 5. Section 5 required those states which were covered by the Voting Rights Act. These were states that uh, had the worst voting records in terms of uh, African Americans voting, based on on a formula of voting in the 1964 presidential election. Those states which were covered, and they were mostly in the South, they were required to submit any changes in voting practices to the Justice Department or a Washington, D.C. federal court and to receive the permission, it was called preclearance, before they could make any change. This proved to be an extraordinarily effective part of the Voting Rights Act because it acted as a deterrent from southern states making changes that were injurious to African-American voting. Even when they went ahead and did it anyway, the Justice Department would strike it down. The Supreme Court in June of 2013 actually struck down Section 4, the formula that allowed Section 5 to go into effect. So the act was really gutted. It was severely weakened by the conservative uh, majority. There are other provisions of the Voting Rights Act, which allows the Justice Department and other interested parties to launch lawsuits, but it's not as good as when Section 5 could work. now requires a much longer, more difficult legal process. What happened in 2010, the Republicans swept the country. Many, many governors and state legislatures became completely Republican. And it's at that point that you begin to have in so many of these states, these efforts to require a a voter ID, cutting back on the days when you could vote, and that we're going to continue to have these kinds of efforts to suppress the vote, and they'll have to be fought day by day, place by place in the courts. That was Professor Gary May, author of Bending Toward Justice, The Voting Rights Act and the Transformation of American Democracy. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To find out more, visit our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. This is KBOO Portland, listener-powered, non-corporate community radio. KBOO is a proud media co-sponsor of Mama C, Global Panther, at In Other Words Bookstore, October 29th, that's Saturday, October 29th, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. This event is all ages and open to the public. 
Who is Mama C? Mama C is a singer, songwriter, poet, traditional African instrumentalist, a revolutionary former Black Panther, mother, healer, and educator. Come hear her incredible story of political exile and how she tours the world. Now, supporting revolutionary movements for human rights and social justice, inspiring and invigorating many people. Again, that's Mama C, Global Panther, Saturday, October 29th at Another Words Bookstore, 14 Northeast Killingsworth, 6 p.m., all ages. KABU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Portland Underground Grad School. Classes that begin in November include What's the Buzz About Bees, Criminal Law, Rewilding 201, and more. Portland Underground Grad School is also known as PUGS. Classes take place all over the Portland metro area. Information about registering, teaching classes, and more can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? 